0: that we love you so much. And God, we pray you'll be with us right now as we open your word we just hear your heart, Father. I pray that those that are here this morning, God, would be open to whatever it is that you wanted to shout to them, Lord. Bless them. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. We started last week a series on, uh, called Cringe, Tough Things That Jesus Said. And uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and they said, well, you do realize April is Easter. Are you going to do one of these sermons on Easter Sunday, like one of the really tough things that Jesus said? I said, oh, yeah, we're going after it, man. We're just going to really just pound people home. I said, no, we'll, we'll bring the gospel message of Jesus on Easter um, a little bit softer there. But I got a lot of really good feedback, man. I always appreciate any kind of feedback Um, But so much feedback about really jumping into some of these tough things that Jesus said. And it's not easy to hear tough things. I mean, how many like hearing something that's really, really tough to hear? I would imagine not many of us. But for some of us, we do know that we get into these places in, in, in our lives where we need to hear something. It's not about whether we want to or not. It really comes to a maturity in our life that says, but do I need to hear this? And it's a healthy practice. And we kind of opened that can of worms last week on what it meant to love your enemies. And a lot of people really were ministered in examining their heart. I got a lot of great emails and text messages and all that stuff of people saying, man, it was really, really good to challenge me because I never realized how many enemies I actually did not love. It was difficult. And so the next couple of weeks in April, aside from Easter, we're going to jump into these, but I do want to preface this preference it with this, this is not a judgmental type of series where I'm looking to come up here with a baseball bat and just beat people on the head. Listen, I am thrown into this sermon as much as you are. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm communicating the Word of God together. So the way I view this, and I pray the way that you view this, is we're on this journey together. This isn't me versus you. This is us together before the cross. You know, before the cross, it is we, it is us, it is those powerful words. And so I pray that you receive those words, and I pray that you'll receive the sermon this morning uh, in that spirit. And Matthew, tw- Matthew chapter 5, it takes us down another difficult road here that we have to look at. And i got to ask a question in this room here first this morning. Is How many of you love board games? Okay, good, good. That was the most hands I ever got on any questions I've ever asked here at one shot without making fun of you people. That was beautiful. <clears throat> but I love board games. But I love like... See, I love like the old school board games. Like, I am the king of Monopoly. Okay, you have to understand this. Like, I am the Monopoly king. Uh, uh, and, 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 and I love the old school games. I will destroy you in Monopoly. I'm not kidding. I'm like, uh, I am like the master Monopoly guy. But one, one game we've kind of uh, resurrected was, how many of you played the game Clue before, right? Clue is awesome, right? And Clue is so much fun because, see, my kids are all at these ages now where they can all play board games Um, but their personalities. How many of you know you could play with a group of people, and if you want to know the personality of someone, man, just pull out a board game right? Like, just pull out a board game, and it never, ever fails. Our board game life goes something like this. We start playing. Like, let's just take Monopoly for an example, okay? We start playing the game, right? Now, my youngest daughter and I, we're all about the negotiation. We're trying to work deals and make stuff. We're like, we're like Broadway, New York, baby. Let's make this deal happen. We're trying to do two or three deals and stuff. Uh, My daughter, Bella, now she's more just like, I just, I'm just here. Like, when is this over? She's kind of going through that whole whole phase there. And then, and then my son just wants to interject the word but in everything, right? Like, I'll trade you Boardwalk for a butt. Like, he just wants to say that all the time, and it gets absolutely saint. And then my wife, my wife is a savage. you got to understand this, right, when we're playing Monopoly. Because my wife just takes her sweet time and what drives the rest of us nuts because the other four of us like me, Bella, Joe, Ari, we want to wheel and deal all the time. My wife just sits on everything forever and she just lets us all slowly die a slow death. Like, she won't give us anything. And so it starts this way, where, where, where we're trying to work deals out. My youngest daughter is like, Mom, make a deal. And she's like, No. My daughter looks at me. She won't make a deal. I can't believe this. Why am I even part of this family? Nobody wants to make a deal. I hate you. It always just goes crazy, right? Like, it just gets out of control. A table's flipped. I'm kidding. I'm exaggerating. But it gets to that level, and me and my oldest daughter always are looking at each other, and we're like, We are the craziest family that has to exist ever, because it just escalates to this point of like craziness. But I love that about board games because it brings out this, um, it, it brings out this uh, competitive spirit. It brings out personalities. And so recently we started playing the game Clue. And Clue, if you've never played it before, uh, it's it's like a mystery game, right? It's a murder mystery game. Who done it? Right? Professor Plum in in the library with the candlestick, whatever it is there. And it's another game that my, my son just wants to always go. It's Professor Plum in the library with his butt. Like he always wants to just throw that thing in there. But Clue, is, is, it's like a tactical game, right? Like you got to roll dice, you got to go this way, you got to go that way, and you got to try to figure it out because you're asking yourself one question, right? It's all based upon one thing. Who did it? Who did it? Who committed the crime, right? Who is the one that committed the crime? Now, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us a completely different story, kind of a whodunit, if you would. And it's like a whodunit addressed by God himself to our hearts. And it's not going to make, it's not a make-believe or fictional story, but it's a very serious mystery. Our our verse tells us this. And and just as in in, in the name of Clue, the game, there is a victim. And Paul tells the Ephesians this. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. In Ephesians 2, 1. And he told the Colossians the same thing. You were dead in your sins. These are two vital scriptures that, 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 that are communicating to us. That they were dead. He's talking to people. He's telling them that they were the corpse that was found at the crime scene. That they had been dead. And, 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 and you know what killed them their sins. It was their sins that had killed them. They were dead in their transgressions and their sins. But the mystery comes back just like the game of clues. Who did it? Who did this? And the Bible's answer is extremely straightforward. It's very, very straightforward. They had done it. They had done it to themselves. And what the Bible, Paul is talking, and what Paul did magnificently to every single church and what's facing us as the church today is the very, very same thing of this It's ownership. We have membership, uh, uh, our annual business meeting coming up. And it's all, annual business meeting is all meant to be in the spirit of ownership of the church. That this is not just my church. It is not just the board's church. But this is our church. And it's not about individualistic ministries that happen out of the church. It's about the vision that God has for our church as a whole. See, that is a very, very healthy vision. That is a very healthy mindset. When everybody is pulling in the right direction, then everybody has a piece of ownership. And when it comes to our own personal sins, God requires us to take ownership. And sometimes that's not very fun. Let's look at our verse here today in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30. And he says this, if, and this is the tough saying where it comes to, because maybe you, like me, have struggled with this. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is a scripture that I have studied a lot. If you don't believe me, listen, it's not even connected to my Bible anymore. That's how much I have studied this scripture. It has literally fallen out of the pages of my Bible. Because this is one that, in early age, I had a hard time with. I had a struggle with. He says this, if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body and go to hell. Now, many people will believe this in the preceding scriptures. It's talking about just lust. That's it, right? It's saying that if you, if you lust, that just simply that's what it's talking about. But I believe there's something more to it than this. I believe it's a lot more than just lust that he's talking about. Yes, lust is in the cauldron of what Jesus is addressing. Absolutely. But context is very, very important. And Jesus painted with a very big brush when he was trying to address people on their own individual thing. What he's trying to say is this. It's your hand. It's your hand. It's your eye. You need to deal with it. You need to deal with this thing. And years ago when I began reading this scripture I decided to take it very seriously I began to read through the Bible for myself for the first time I began to learn what it meant to do Bible studies not just reading through it to kind of get a notch uh, in God's good graces but I began to reading and not knowing where to start I looked at the book of Genesis and it was interesting <clears throat> If you begin to read the book of Genesis, it's fascinating. It became quickly one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I was fascinated by where everything had started. And I was particularly fascinated by the relationship of Cain and Abel. Now, if you don't know the relationship of Cain and Abel, they were brothers. They had a spat. um, And one killed the other. and And God had judged upon them. In Genesis 4, 6 through 7, it says this. The Lord said to Cain, he said this. He said, why are you angry? Now, why is he angry? Because both brothers were to bring a sacrifice before the Lord, right? And he accepted ones and he accepted Abel's, but he did not accept Cain's. For various reasons. But he's, but, and so God is talking to him out of this context. And he says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. You see, what Cain had done was he didn't bring the very, very best before God. He brought kind of something. He knew exactly what God required as a sacrifice. He understood the scriptures. He had heard from God. He had seen his father perform. This is what God desires at a sacrifice. At that point, it was animals. But Cain decided to bring what he thought was his best. And don't we struggle with that today in here in this church? Somebody say, ouch. We don't bring what we think God wants. What we do is we bring what we want. We don't give what God requires. We give what we feel like giving. We don't serve where it's needed. What we do is we serve when we feel like it, if we feel like it. And what we do is we still struggle with the very same thing that Cain struggles with. And so what does God tell Cain? What can we learn from it? God told Cain, you've got an anger problem. See, what I find fascinating about this story is this, is Cain had come and he had brought something before God that he knew God didn't want. God didn't smite him right there. What does God do? God dialogues with Cain. And he looks at him and he says, you got an anger problem. He said, you're angry. You're not really managing this anger very, very well. You're just frustrated and you've got a problem. And what you do is you need to deal with it until you can master it. Because if you don't deal with it, look at what that verse says there. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. And where does this plant from? It plants from lack of ownership in our lives we don't take ownership in what we're doing. One version says sin is crouching at the door. At your door. And that image is almost like waiting at a doctor's office. If you're waiting for that door to open for the doctor to see you. It's like that sin is waiting in that waiting room for you to just open a door to your anger, to your lust, to your flesh. Whatever it may be. But it's just waiting there. And it's crouching, waiting to just destroy you. Waiting to encompass you completely. And so we look and we say, well, why did God have to say that to Cain? Why tell him to deal with this anger? Well, because Cain had already shifted blame of his anger to someone else. He already began to shift the blame right off the bat. And you see, I always say this. I've said this in this church multiple times, but I say this. If you do a study on the correlation between Adam and David... Both of them did things that God did not desire. Both of them did things that broke covenants God had made with them. Both Adam and both David had done things that were sinful in the eyes of God. So why have favor on David and call David a man after God's own heart, but yet banish Adam from the Garden of Eden and say, you will be here no more. And to the dust you shall return. I think it comes down to one simple thing. If you look in your scriptures in the, in, in the book of Genesis, what did Adam do after he had sinned? He hid from the Lord. What did David do when he sinned? He threw himself at the foot of the Lord. You see, David never hid. David owned. He made mistakes. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He had lust in his heart. He had all of these things. But what David never did was he never blamed. What is the first thing Adam did? Is this woman, Right? Is this lady? I told you I was fine here by myself. I had my man paradise. I was good. You took the rib. You gave me this woman. I think she needs to kind of go back to somewhere else. Immediately starts shifting blame. But David, David, in one powerful verse, when God has chooses to take his son. As a sacrifice of his sin, David mourned, he wept. he fasted, and then he got up, he washed his face, he ate, and he thanked the Lord, Scripture says, and he said, had you not afflicted me, I would never have sought you so deeply. That's maturity. That's the difference of right standing with God. That is the difference, and so what does God give him as an adulterer, as a luster, as a murderer? He gives him the title, man after God's own heart. It's huge that we take ownership in our life. And we look at Cain. Cain begins to blame. He begins to blame. It was Abel's fault. Cain's anger wasn't his problem. It wasn't his fault. His anger was his brother's fault. I wouldn't be angry if my brother didn't do this. Somehow, if my brother, he had cheated me out of God's approval. And so it's his fault. It's not my fault. I wouldn't be angry if he didn't make me look so bad. If he didn't make me look so foolish. And God is basically looking back at Cain. And I believe it's the same thing that God is looking back at his church today. And he's saying, don't blame anyone for your sin. Don't blame anyone for your lack of commitment. Don't blame anyone. It's your anger. You need to deal with it. And in the same way, Jesus is telling his audience. It's your hand. It's your eye. It's involved in the sin. And so if it's your hand and if it's your eye... It is your job to fix it. It is your job to take care of that thing in your life. And if that means you have to do it every day, you do it every day. Now, see, the world disagrees with that, right? We live in a culture where that doesn't make any sense. The world has this no-fault mindset. We live in a world that has no-fault divorces. That has no fault uh, insurance. There's all sorts of no fault, and the world says your sin's not your fault; it's someone else's fault. The world says, "Well, you were born this way; it's not your fault. None of this is your fault." And the world always has a way of looking for excuses to remove ownership within our lives to blame sin on someone else. I read this following poem by a pastor who had read a similar sermon like this online, and it says this: "It says I went to my psychiatrist." to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here's what he dredged up from the subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I'm always a drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally that I poison all of my lovers. But I am happy now. I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong in me is someone else's fault. Someone else's fault. One person joked, I assume full responsibility from all of my actions, except the ones that are other people's fault. We think like that. One of the big arguments in psychology today is called nature versus nurture. It's this mindset. In other words, does our nurture, our genetic makeup, the makeup of who we are, the shape of who we are, or is it our nurture, is it our environment around us, how we were raised, and what influences us that we have encountered that shapes us? Is it our nature, our makeup, or is it the environment that we come from? I believe that there's there's two different ways to look at this. I think that there's uh, multiple ways. The Bible acknowledges both are true. The Bible says to us that you are a product of nature, that you are a product. You're affected by your genetics, your size, your shape, the color of your skin, your abilities. They're all influenced by our genes. They're very much influenced, and they shape how we respond to the world that we know it and how we respond to our life's experiences, but you're also shaped by your nurture. By the, by the types of parents you had, where you went to school, who you had for friends, how people treated you as you, up, as you grew up, these are all things that begin to shape us. And so nature and nurture, they're both true. They're both valid. They both shape who we are in many, in many ways. But here's the difference for the follower of Jesus Christ. And this is where we cringe when we stand before God. When you and I stand before God, I promise you one thing, study your Bible if you don't believe me, that God is not going to ask you about your genetic makeup. He's just not. He's not going to ask you about who or what influenced your life. Well, what situation were you in? All God is going to ask you is, is what choices did you make? What are the choices that you make? He'll not allow us to try to shift blame. We cannot think that we can stand before God and go, but you don't understand. I had this type of father and life was very, very difficult. Uh-uh. You don't understand. And we can put it as deep as we want to go, church. We can say, you don't understand. I was abused. I was this. I was beaten. I was all of those things. But at the very end of the day, some of the tough things, toughest things that Jesus said is what choices did you make? not in spite of the situations and we will all be judged according to those choices we will all stand before the throne room of judgment and we will be judged according to those now the bible speaks on so many different theological struggles there are different ones and one uh, one, one struggle is is uh, the bible teaches that we'll be judged as believers because of our sins We'll be judged as believers, but yet John the Baptist came, and John the Baptist had declared that Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. So in theological circles, you'll hear people saying, well, it's not necessarily uh, the sin has been taken away once we accept Jesus, that we do understand that those sins are taken away. And the Bible gives validity that we'll look through that talks about we cannot just continually sin and sin and sin. But the struggle that comes in is, is for me is if Jesus came to take away the sins of the world, John, John the Baptist proclaimed that he comes to take the sins of the world. Are we being judged on our sins or are we being judged on our effectiveness for Christ? We must take that very seriously. Listen to me. We take it very seriously, the things that our lives that cause us to stumble before God, that remove us from his plan because sin is so in there. We are to give our best As the statement of Jesus indicates here, in order to get our lives uh, uh, to a place where we don't fail before him. This is what I believe is the heart of it. So when psychologists and sociologists embrace the idea that people can help themselves, they not only show that they don't have a clue. Get it? Clue from the game earlier? Never mind. But what they get is this. What they miss is that they also end up embracing many heresies many old heresies in the book. If you look at a woman caught in adultery, a woman might say, I couldn't help myself. We just fell in love. We're destined to be together. The man with pornography on his computer might say, I couldn't help myself. That's just the way I'm wired. A homosexual might say, I can't help myself. I was just born this way, and God says, I don't think so. You weren't born that way, and you weren't wired that way. My wife will tell you, that's one of the things that gets kind of a cringe in my my back here. I think when we go, I'm just not wired that way. I believe this, and you can believe what you want. This isn't a make or break thing, but when we put ourselves in this position, we go, that's just not how I'm wired. I believe that that translates into, I refuse to change. I refuse to change. I don't know about you. I'm constantly growing, and until the day that I stand before the Lord, I'm not complete. That's not done with me. Good Lord, I look at myself, and at least I hope He's not done with me. (laughs) And so I don't like the, well, we're not, we're wired this way. We're not wired that way. And so God looks at us and he says, no, 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 no. You can't give in to all of those things. You can't give in to all of those things. You weren't born that way and you weren't wired that way. And you weren't destined to do what you do or what you did. That you had a choice and you made a choice that was opposite from the life that I had for you. That's the truth of the matter. I heard a pastor one time say, everyone does what they've already intended to do. And that's the truth of the matter. Our choice is if I'm angry, it's because I've decided I have the right to be angry. If I'm lustful, it's because I've decided I want to be lustful. If I'm selfish, I've already predetermined that I choose to be selfish and I have the right to be selfish. And if we go back to Cain, he was an angry and a bitter man, but he decided that he had the right to be angry, that he had the right to be bitter. And so he refused to accept the very thing that was wrong for him to do so. We spoke of David earlier. He committed adultery with his best friend's wife, but he had already decided long ago that he was going to do that. He didn't just stumble into adultery. He thought to himself, it's okay to look lustfully upon another man's wife. He realized it was wrong. He knew in his heart that it was wrong, but what did he do? He did it anyway. The Pharisees. Pharisees are religious Men, But Jesus condemned them as being greedy and selfish men. These men had choices that since they were religious and holy men, that they had excuses for selfishness. They had a reason to be selfish because they were so holy and because they were so righteous. And all these people did what they did because they had already decided that it was okay to do that. We make up in our mind long before we act upon our our, our thoughts. We're going to just go ahead and do this. And Jesus Tells us this. Make a different decision. Make a different decision. Decide not to live like that. You may have fallen into that, but you don't have to live like that. You may have stumbled into that, but I came away to take take away those sins, so don't worry. I'll take away those sins. You just ask me, and I'll do it, and you don't have to live constantly in that. Hear the beauty in that. Jesus is pushing us to make wise decisions, and so what He's saying, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. Now, you have to understand something, okay? We look at literal interpretations of Scripture. We look at figurative. We look at um, all these different things that Jesus uses. Now, we would all, I believe, agree that Jesus was a master storyteller. Not only was the a master storyteller, but Jesus was the master of getting large crowds of people to walk away and to think, to talk amongst themselves. This is why he's the greatest preacher uh, ever that had ever lived, And in Jesus' day, we have to understand this in the context of this scripture. It was very common teaching techniques for rabbis. Very common that they would use uh, imagery to confront the audience with very in-your-face messages. They would use some of the most drastic, absurd statements that it would take to make them think about what they were speaking about a lot more seriously because the whole thing was these were small communities that they wanted to talk so Jesus is catching his audience's attention he's catching their attention by commanding an absurdity of gouging our eyes off and cutting off our hands you see Jesus was not a watered down type of preacher he didn't give fluffy messages all the time. And, the, and, and, and you have to understand, these were to large groups of people. So if you've ever been a public speaker, you realize that you have a short amount of time to grab a large group of people's attention. I lost many of you 20 minutes ago, probably. So imagine 5,000 people trying to get their attention with something and keep them completely captivated. And so Jesus uses this imagery to get people to cut it out. To stop, to stop what? If your friends are pulling you away from God, it's time to cut them out. That that boyfriend, that girlfriend, whoever it may be, they're pulling you further from God. They're not bringing you closer to God. My youth pastor used to say this all the time: relationships are like elevators; they'll either bring you up or they'll pull you down. Those relationships need to be cut out. If your activities, your extracurricular activities, that they're causing you to sin, cut them out. If they're not God honoring activities they're nothing that brings life to you, but they're just uh, uh, kind of saturated in death, it's time to cut them out. If you're looking at things on the internet, you know you shouldn't be looking to you, looking at. It's Time to cut it out. If you're reading things that only make you bitter and angry and from your life spews bitter and angriness, it's time to cut those things out. If you find yourself when it's just you and God alone, and you know a good part of your life is having conversations that are not good conversations to have. They are gossip-filled, tearing people down in your life. Time to cut them out. See, the easy thing would be to do is to look at the Scripture and to just say, well, he's only talking to people who lust. No, he's talking to people who lie. He's talking to people who lust. He's talking to people who gossip. He's talking to people who steal. He's talking to faithless people, things that cause faithless uh, um, lifestyles in them. He's talking to us. He's telling us to cut it out. He's begging us to make a different decision because if you're making bad decisions, if you're making bad choices that drag you away from God, if you yourself, you find yourself making excuses for bad behavior, you can very well end up on the wrong side of heaven because all of those bad decisions end up pulling you further and further from God. And let me tell you something this morning. God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. Essentially, people who hide themselves behind excuses and they shift blame to others for their own sins, they begin building walls between themselves and God. Higher and higher and higher walls. Many years ago, I went through this uh, phase where I said, you know what, I'm just going to be honest when I get in conversations with close friends about my weaknesses. I'm just going to be totally free. I'm going to uh, really just come open about like, character flaws when we're talking because sometimes we get in conversations and we want to puff ourselves up that we're the best this and the best that. And I started just doing light things like where people would go, oh, I do this and this and that. And I would just look and I'd go, you know what, I'm really bad at that. I always felt the need in kind of the rat race of stuff to be uh, that person who would go, well, I'm, I'm super organized. Oh, me too. I, I, I label every piece of sliced cheese individually just to know what day I need to eat. Like we just do these ridiculous things, right? It's, 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 my daughter calls it this. Um, there's a saying out there. It's a great saying. If you know someone in life who always has to one-up you, my daughter, I don't know if she made this up. You know, she's my daughter. She made it up. But uh, she calls that person extra. Like, they got to have an extra story, an extra comment over you. And she's always like, oh, this person, dad, this friend of mine in school, they're extra. Like, I say I did this. And like, well, I did this too. And eventually, the conversation goes fuller and fuller. And that person you're talking to just created the moon, right? Like, it just gets so crazy that way. And we do that. And I started going, you know what? I'm going to stop doing that. And around my circle of friends, they would go like, oh, yeah, I'm the best father in the world. Like, you know, I bought Disneyland for my son. I mean, I gave it back because that's too much. But I did that. And I would go like, you know what, I don't, I don't really buy my kids everything that they want. We don't really do all these super, super extravagant things because, you know what, I just want my kids to learn to earn some stuff. And then there would be things where people would go, oh, I'm so this, I'm so that. And I'd go, I'm not really good at that. And it was this series, this season in my life where I started feeling so liberated. You know why? I was honest with myself. And the more I was honest with myself, the more easier it became for me to be honest with God. And so the things that I needed to cut out of my life With very select people, my wife being one of them, I could look at her and just go, you know what? I'm not good at that. I'm struggling with that. I'm terrible with that. That's a sin that needs to be eradicated in my life. didn't mean it went away right away. It didn't mean that it was eradicated completely, but I wouldn't lie to her about it. Well, I'm doing all these things, and God knows how much I'm serving and all of those stuff. No. What it is at the center of it all is Jesus is asking us to take ownership, but he's really asking us to grab a spirit of David. And listen to me, if you don't remember anything I say this morning, at least just be honest with God. If you can't be honest with anyone in this world, if you want a healthy, healthy piece of homework in your life, promise this day forward, God, when it's just you and me, I'm always going to be honest with you. And when you're honest with him, you're able to be in that lifestyle, that thing that you're struggling with, and tell him, listen, God, I'm doing this. I don't know when I can stop doing this. I'm addicted to this. I don't know when I can stop being addicted to this. But what I want you to know is this. I hate this. Why? Because you hate this. And so I hate it. And I need your help to overcome it. And when do you stop saying that? When you have overcome. When God has given you the strength to overcome. Now, some of this stuff might be heavy and deep and downright scary. I want to tell you something, Church. There's good news. The good news is Hebrews One of those scriptures that we had read uh, in Hebrews, it says this, if we keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And those are scary scriptures that we look at. Man, if we don't cut it out, we have a really, really bad eternity in a place called hell. It's in the Bible. It talks about it. But the good news is this, and this is why I encourage you to be honest before God, is we have to understand, again, in Scripture, context is always key. And and the Hebrews, they were deliberately deciding to keep on sinning. There was no, when Paul talks there and he goes, what, are we going to just keep on sinning? We're just going to keep doing this whole thing? You're just going to keep thinking that grace is enough and you don't don't need to, to change from your ways? No, 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 no. God always calls us to participate, just as he called Cain to participate in a conversation. And even though Jesus came to take away the sins of the world, he still calls us to participate in taking responsibility for our, our, our actions. And listen to me, everyone in this room, we can all say this, God is calling all of us to cut something out. I promise you, if we're being truthfully honest with God, everybody in this room, myself included, the leaders, everybody, God is calling us to cut something out. Something out that's not pleasing to him. In the book of Romans, Paul tells the Christians that, they're, they're, that, that God loves us so much that he loves forgiving us of our sins. Like He loves to do that. Think about that. He loves to forgive us of our sins. He loves to show his grace. He loves to show his kindness. It is his pleasure, scripture says, to cleanse us from our sins. He goes on to write this, what shall then we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, in other words, if God gets so much pleasure out of forgiving us, why don't we sin a lot and make Him really happy? Why are you sinning? If God apparently joys this. He imper- no, no, no. Paul comes back and says that by no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized unto His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through His glory the Father, that we may live a what? New life. God wants us at the end of the day to live a new life. And sometimes we have to live a new life for quite so many days in a row. I know that this grieves your heart, but I don't want to do this. God, I own this. One of the things I'm teaching my son, eight years old right now, is you take responsibility for your actions. Yeah, but my sisters didn't do this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but mom wouldn't trade me boardwalk for you know this whole thing, so I flipped the whole table. No, 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 this is your fault. This is nobody else's fault. You chose to respond in this inappropriate way. And so we do those things. The point is God has called us, God called us to change our lives so that we can live holy, devoted lives unto Him. And We can't do that if we don't cut these things out of our life, church. The beauty of it is He loves to help us with that. Do you understand that this morning? He loves to help us with that. When we first became Christians, God washed away our sins when we believed, when we repented, when we confessed that Jesus is Lord and were buried in the waters of baptism so that our our sins could be cleansed. But even after we became Christians, how many of you know this, we're still messed up. How many of you know, look at someone and say, you're messed up. I'm kidding, don't, 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 don't. But this isn't a magic pill. It doesn't mean when you become a Christian, you don't sin anymore. No, we still sin. And we still need that grace. We still need His covering upon us. I love the scripture, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, there's the big if. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How often do we do that? As often as it's needed. With a repentant heart. Not with, a, not with just a uh, heart. But with a repentant heart. Not just a uh, okay, you know, when my kids get in fights we make them talk. Ask your sister to forgive. You. Tell your sister I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ah, no. Tell your brother you're sorry you said that. No, Joe, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. Okay, can I just leave now? That's not repentant. And here's the thing is, is just as God knows that secret sins of our heart, He knows He knows a weak repentance, one that truly doesn't mean anything. But God's promise is to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful. We sang it today, Grace of God. I'm so thankful. And in the promise, God is telling us that if we stop, here's the key stop making excuses. And here's the thing, too. We not only make excuses for ourselves, but we make excuses for others. Parents, I'm talking to you. We make excuses for our children. Well, they act this way because, fill in the blank. Let me tell you something, parents. let me tell you something, with all the love I can in our heart. Stop making excuses for your children. Stop making excuses for your spouses. Stop making those excuses lovingly to say this is wrong. This is wrong. It can't be. I need prayer. This is why we start tag groups. Why? So that men, women, couples, uh, a variety of different groups can come together and go, I don't know what to do. I'm at my rope's end here, and I'm not sure why, because my husband's acting this way, because my wife is acting this way, because my children are acting this way. But what we do is we feel like we have to put the mask on and be perfect and all of these things, but the truth of the matter is this, is we have to stop making excuses because the moment we stop making excuses and the moment we call upon the power of God, the moment we see a life transformed. we see, God do his very, very best, and what we do is we decide to fight We decide to fight sin and we refuse to accept it as normal in our lives. I'm always shocked by how people will receive just normal. This is just life. No, don't receive that. Well, this is how my life turned out. This is what it is. That is not what God wants for you. This is how I am, this is how I'm wired, this is how I'm born, this is just how it is. No, that is not what God promised for us, that is not what Jesus went to the cross for us, that is not what grace is entailing, because the moment we keep saying, I'm wired this way, we are telling God, I don't need grace. I am who I am, and that's all that I am, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. (laughs) Nice, (laughs) Sean's trying to whistle over there. But seriously, that's all. That's it. I don't need this grace. That's what we're looking, which means you went to the cross for nothing, Jesus. Because I am who I am. No, no, no. We go, God, thank you. You sent your son to the cross because God, I needed him to do that because I wouldn't have got to heaven without him. I sure as heck wouldn't have gotten to heaven without him. We are the masters of our own demise, but we are also capable, Christ-following people who can call upon the name of the Lord for strength at any time. And it's beautiful that we can do so. And it says this in the final ending of the book, that he will wipe away every tear, every stain. But we cannot blame him. We cannot blame people. We cannot blame our circumstance. We have to cut it out. We have to stop being victims and start truly, truly being victorious in God. I'm going to call the worship team up right now, and I'm going to ask the ushers if they can begin to pass the offering. I want to thank you for your giving constantly towards what God's doing. We're going to hear a little bit more about that in our business meeting once we dismiss. And I want to give us a chance to respond. I know, look, the, the, the title of this sermon series is Cringe, Tough Sayings of Jesus. But I do want to emphasize this. You know, there was a book written many years ago, and I love the title, and it was all about the tension in Christianity, the things that we had, had fought through. You guys can just go ahead and start passing them. And the title of the book was called The Tension is Good, and the whole message behind it was this, was about, listen, getting into the scriptures that are very difficult for us to absorb and saying to ourselves, ah, this is tough, but really seeing that it's good, it's like a workout. When I was an athlete, when I was an athlete, I remember I had two choices, and one coach came because I was a complainer in the very beginning of practice. Man, what do I got to do? This, I'm so tired, blah, blah, blah. And he said, Jimmy, you, this is what will happen. You will become great, or you will become an afterthought based upon how you choose to view practice. And he said, This practice doesn't have to be painful, pa- practice can be good. And so, what you do is every time that body is hurting, you say to yourself, It's good. This is good. So when I played football, I remember one time I was a quarterback and I got leveled by an upperclassman. And I remember he knocked the snot out of me. Thought he had smashed my ribs. And I remember getting up, my coach was like, are you okay? It's good. It's good. It's good. Right? Thinking like my whole insides had imploded. It's good. And I took on this mantra the rest of my career. When something hurt, I go, it's good. I do that to my kids now. It might look heartless. But they get something, boom, bang their knee, whatever. I look and I go, oh, it's good. Try to change that mindset. Why is it good? Because you're gonna have one of the coolest bruises in your whole school. Like that, dude, that bruise is a story, man. Like you lived life. This is good. Doesn't always work. <laughs> but my percentages is higher than I sure thought. The tension is good, church. The tension in these scriptures is good between God and his commandments and God and his grace and you will only go as far in your walk with the Lord by how you review that you know because what we can't do is we can't say well his commandments are too heavy I can't listen to those but his grace oh I love that well you know he's all forthright and I don't like this and I don't appreciate that oh but his mercy and his peace I'll take all of that no God does look at us and listen he says you take all of me or you can have none of me. You Take all of me, you can't have any of me. That's our relationship with God. And it starts our ownership in our hearts. We take ownership. There's a story I want to read to you that I read recently. It goes like this. Thomas Costain's history, the three Edwards, described the life of Raynald III, a 14th century duke in what now is known as Belgium. And grossly overrate, Reynold was commonly called by his Latin nickname, crassus, which means fat. After a a violent quarrel, Reynold's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynold, but did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynold in the castle and promised him promised him he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. Very, very simple. As soon as he was able to leave the room. And this would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and a door of complete normal size and none was locked or barred. The problem was Reynald's size. He couldn't fit through a regular door. To regain his freedom, he needs to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother. And each day, he sent a variety of delicious foods. The best of the best. Every day, he wheeled before Renald on a cart. The tastiest foods, the most uh, decadent desserts. But instead of dieting his way out of his prison, Renald grew fatter from the food. And when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty of imprisoning his own brother, he had a ready answer. A very simple answer. He said, my brother is not a prisoner. Our brother's not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. Reynald stayed in that room for 10 years and was not released until after his brother Edward had died in battle. But by then, his health had become so ruined that he died within a year of his brother's death. And history goes down to say that he was a prisoner of his own appetite a prisoner of his own sin, a prisoner of his own overindulgence, not taking responsibility and saying, I know the way out. I know the way out. I'm not being held. Listen, let me tell you this this morning, church. You are not a prisoner of your own sin. You are not. You know the way out and it is at the foot Of Jesus, And however many times you have to go to the foot of that cross, man, you beeline it to the foot of that cross. Because why? You are not like him. You are not trapped. You don't have to be locked into whatever it is that you are struggling with. But you can be set free by the blood of Jesus. Stand with me this morning if you would. Some of you in here, honestly, the altar should probably be full with all of us this morning. Let's be real. But I want to tell you right now, and I want to address it in the room. The enemy is telling you, don't you dare take a step forward because everybody in this room will judge you. No one has a right to judge anyone. But what I want to do is give you the next several minutes just an opportunity to step before the Lord and to just leave whatever it is that sin that you need to, you know you need to cut it out. You know you need to cut it out of your life. You know you need to just take it out and you need to leave it. I'm just going to invite you this morning to make your way up to the altar as a symbolic move towards God to say, God... When you get up here, you just say, God, I leave whatever it is that you're struggling with right here. And the moment I walk out to my seat, it does not come with me. And you speak to that thing and you say, you are not allowed to follow me anymore. I am not a prisoner, but I know where I need to go to be set free. And you make your way on up here and you leave that here. There is no condemnation in Christ, but grace in his mercy, in his blood for you always. So don't wait a moment. Don't give in to the enemy's lie to just say, don't make your way on up there. You don't need to. He's not talking to you. He's talking to someone else. Lift your hands with me in this place, if you would right now. Father, I pray in the next several minutes as we worship, God, that your spirit would come upon your people, that every person that makes that radical, bold step up here will be able to say, I leave it right here at the foot of the cross, and I take it no more. And they would know your grace, and they would know your power. And they would know your mercy. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Let's worship for a few moments together.
1: God, take us back. The place we began. the simple pursuit of nothing but you. The innocence of a heart in your hands. Oh God, take us back. Oh God, take us back to an unswerving faith in the power of Your name. A heart that is for. Your kingdom to reign A church that is known For your presence again Oh God, take us back Nothing and no one comes close to you Nothing could ever come close Oh, nothing and no one, it's you and you only. Oh, nothing could ever come close, Jesus. Keep our hearts real. And keep your grace close. You're bringing us back. us yeah.